This is Science Friday, and I'm your host, Dessa. For all the dark content on our news feeds, humans can get real eager for a feel-good story, and we are sometimes too eager to find one in the coverage of disability technology. You might have seen videos online of a person with a disability being fitted into an exoskeleton, essentially wearing a robot to help them walk. Onlookers might cheer in the background, dramatic music swells, and we get the sense that we're watching something inspirational and empowering, a victory of the human spirit. This might seem like an absolute triumph of scientific innovation at first blush. But our next guest asks us to look again at what's actually going on in narratives like this one. Dr. Ashley Shu studies the intersection of disability and technology and how our collective fixation on these fancy, supposedly transformative gadgets could be doing more harm than good. In her new book, she coins the word techno-ableism to get to the heart of the matter. Joining me now is Dr. Ashley Shu, author of Against Techno-ableism and associate professor at Virginia Tech, based in Blacksburg, Virginia. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dessa. Will you walk me through the basics of techno-ableism? Yeah, so ableism is um, a bias against disabled people and towards um, sort of non-disabled ways of life. And techno-ableism is like one sort of strand of ableism that we see, like I see as someone who studies um, technology and science um, so often in, in our narratives about what it means to do good and humanitarian work in the world. but often sort of our narratives about technological infrastructure and and new technologies, especially when they're aimed at disability, get lauded as necessary and empowering for disabled people, as if being disabled itself is, is something um, to fight against and to always devalue so that being a disabled person and experiencing joy and, and, you know, normal things in life becomes something that's always like spoken up against by our scientific and technological enterprise. It means that so many, so many teams are lauded for their humanitarian work, often without ever talking to disabled people who might use their devices. This becomes a real problem for just existing as sort of an okay regular disabled person in the world. And when did you when did you start thinking about this? Because you, you coined the term techno-ableism, right? I did. And I coined it a number of years ago. So I became an amputee 10 years ago. I also became hard of hearing. I have tinnitus. I have chemo brain, uh, which I'm going to forget. Um, and then I, um, I also got a Crohn's diagnosis a few years after. All of these things sort of happened to me in the same year around 2014. And as I was becoming disabled, I knew three months ahead of time that I was getting an amputation. And, you know, people would tell me, you know, think more positively, uh, but it was coming. I had a very large bone tumor. And so many of the things that I was sent and that people wanted to tell me is that prosthetics are so advanced now, right? All the stories they've heard in the media is, you know, this, this idea that prosthetics are so advanced and I'll be restored back to normal and I'll come back better than ever. It wasn't until I talked to different prosthetists and the conversation was not about like how I'm going to be better than I ever was. It was that things will always be different from here on out. Um, the sort of normalcy that that I was used to will be changed. My normal will be very different. And that this is something that, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll get out of bed and I'll I'll put on a liner and then I'll put on my leg. And then if it's not fitting right, then I'll readjust everything. And it'll be, you know, the first thing I do in the morning, the last thing I do at night. 
you know, if things are going well with the technology, that's the, that's the hope, right? But it was never going to be the same again. And we never see narratives like that um, represented in wider culture, even though it's something I hear in disability community often, right? The idea that things might never be the same is, you know, sometimes presented as unsettling. And that's why you should, you know, take all of these preventative measures against disability. You know, when we're talking about how technologies are poised and, and positioned narratively, right, and rhetorically um, against disability, I think it does a real harm to talking about what it is actually is to live with these technologies over time, about maintenance, about manufacturers not producing the right parts, about uh, wear and tear on your cyborgian components. I think I, I hadn't really considered the entire class of disability technology as, as a field before being alerted to it by your book. Can you can you explain like what is disability tech for people who might not be familiar with the parameters there? When I'm talking about disability tech, particularly, you know, that which gets framed in in techno-ableist ways, um, it's often, you know, high-tech bionic devices, usually exoskeletons, prosthetic legs, um, different types of retinal, neural implants, cochlear implants among them, um, sort of sort of less explored in the literature is things like pacemakers, uh, which are also disability technologies. Things like things that are outside of me, like ramps. Um, those are disability technologies. And I even think about like the technologies we create for ourselves. So I think about sort of neurodivergent communities creating weighted blankets, OXO grippy handled kitchen gadgets designed by uh, Betsy Farber for her arthritis. Um, all of these things are disability technologies. The ones that I think get, you know, the most attention are usually ones that cost a lot of money, <laughs> have lots of computerized components and require the sort of maintenance that most people can't DIY. You also, you made a mention of, of some, some games that have had particular resonance with some members of the disability community. You mentioned like Pokemon and Dungeons and Dragons. Can you describe why you reference those in your book? So I reference those in the book because I'm talking to other people. I don't know that I would have come up like with that on my own, but um, we had a panel of autistic people talking about autistic technologies a couple years ago. And the sort of conversation that ended up unfolding wasn't really about any of the technologies that you would think about. I, I love that this was the result. Um, but instead, it was about like what sorts of technologies actually help people not just feel included, but like they're making like an impact on one another, what sort of things help bond and gel. And they ended up talking a lot about Pokemon and about D&D and also about Discord, like emojis that helped express emotion, um, you know, for people whose emotions might be harder to read on their face for neurotypical people, like to have those sort of things where you could actually like create your own reactions and, and use the features of Discord in a way that help you express emotion. And, you know, when you talk about the way in which disability tech is crafted, you've been real clear about the fact that designing with is better than designing for. Can you describe some of the, like, approaches in development? Like, where where does innovation go off the rails? And why are we sometimes romanced, you know, by the stories that I mentioned at the top of the segment, right? These, like, wow, she can walk again. What are we getting wrong I mean, these glamorous stories often interview only engineers and scientists or the caretakers of disabled people. You rarely see disabled people interviewed and quoted. And if they do, it's usually like a very short quote um, in these stories. You know, at the front, 
sort of when we think about where disabled people get recruited into science projects is often at the level of of human human subjects research. And so much needs to come before that. You're already at the point where you are testing something that you have a clear idea of how you would like it to be used. And you're sort of testing along the lines of use and you've already created it with particular possibilities. And that's like way too late in the process um, to be consulting the, the communities that in theory you think you want to work for. Um, Usually, I mean, sometimes people are working on things and trying to find a community for it. I think that looks a little different. I mean, so many of these news stories are like about ultra high tech, like sexy technologies. And, and we don't get the technologies that disabled people might care a lot more about. So particularly in the case of exoskeletons, you know, a lot of um, people who would be potential users. And of course, exoskeletons are posed as solving the problem of not walking. Not walking is only a problem when there are no ramps, right? When we don't have like the right infrastructure to include, um, you know, wheelchair users, but plenty of people are using wheelchairs because they, they need to sit down more often, right? Not everyone is paraplegic or quadriplegic who's using a wheelchair. Um, you know, people with different like fainting disorders uh, where they might, you know, fall down and hit their head and it, it would be better to use a wheelchair than get a, a severe head trauma, right? There are these sorts of, of trade-offs um, sometimes in, in thinking about how to use the technology. So I think it really like misunderstands the group that this is for. And then a lot of, you know, people who would be aimed for like um, paralyzed wheelchair users um, would also say, you know, we'd love to see more research about bowel and bladder health. This is a thing um, the bad cripple Bill Peace wrote a lot about, um, you know, critiquing exoskeletons as being humanitarian cover for military projects and not about disability at all. Ooh, that is a heavy, heavy point. And, you know, you, when you talk about, um, the field and maybe also society at large being too excited about these like super high tech, sexy, mega glamour stories. What are the actual needs? Like, can you differentiate it? You you wear a prosthetic. So if someone were to ask you, hey, what innovation would be helpful? It sounds like you're not going to answer with like a, a chrome plated exoskeleton. No, I actually really like the leg I have. <laughs> um, I, I, um, I mean, I think a lot of the conversations among amputees about prosthetics, and I will say the vast majority of amputees are like amputees. So I am speaking in a very, like a much more narrow uh, uh, way. In fact, um, you know, issues with sweating are usually at the top of the list that we are filling our um, gel liners with with sweat each day um, and taking it off very carefully so you don't get liquid places, especially when you've had a long or hot day. Temperature control is often um, a conversation. You know, people want to talk about blister care, right? When you have a leg that doesn't fit just right or you, your body's changed because your body changes. The technology could be great one day and awful the next day. And it's only because you ate very salty onion rings at Disney World the day before, and now you can't get on your leg to walk. <laughs> Real story. Very salty onion rings. Would do it again. And I'm like icing my leg and reclining and trying to like get it back to its normal size um, in order to spend my second day on vacation, right? Um, there, there's, there's things that are just sort of overlooked. The idea that you have a great technology, so then you're good to go. It's just never the real story. Yeah, it's not a complete account. So, big leap. Ready? We're going from salted onion rings to outer space. Okay. You, <laughs> you write in the book 
about outer space quite a bit, which is exciting because, of course, that's a, that's a passion point for Science Friday. You mentioned the Gallaudet 11. Will you, will you recount that story for us? Oh, yeah. Um, so the Gallaudet 11 are 11 deaf men who were recruited by NASA in the 1960s. And they were recruited and went through all the same astronaut training. But they were recruited because they were particularly good at a particular thing. And the particular thing that they were all great at was not getting motion sick. Because these were, I think, 10 of the 11 were congenitally deaf men. And then the other had lost their hearing very early in life. And deaf people, just congenitally deaf people, don't get motion sick. Um, so NASA was like, these people are superior. We need to test out and learn from these deaf men um, so that our astronauts, you know, aren't heave-hoeing in, in, in the space shuttle. So they're recruited because they're superior. They were never considered. None of them were ever considered as like astronaut candidates, but they went through all the same training being jerked around in different um, configurations. And the idea was that NASA could learn from deaf people, even though it wouldn't have considered deaf people for astronaut candidacy. There's kind of a, a double standard there, right? Hey, you've got this asset and skill that we clearly recognize as valuable for space training and information gathering. We are asking for your help, but we're not offering you the opportunity to participate in a more meaningful way in the program. Well, I know the Gallaudet 11 enjoyed participating in this program. Um, I, I won't fault it there. I mean, women weren't even recruited um, at mm. this point in NASA's history. But there is there is a sense in which... Even when disabled people do things better, like have superior skills because of their embodiment, they are still considered inferior, right? This is ableism through and through, right? That someone whose body configuration might be like equal or better in say zero G, then, you know, if walking doesn't matter, right? If you're floating, um, there's a whole bunch of disabled people who will be equally good for a sort of, of mission if we're talking about something in zero-g. Of course, everyone's disabled in space. If you come back from space, you're going to be disabled. Your bones are going to be uh, a little bit more lightweight, for instance. The shape of your eyes changes under different pressure. And of course, the sort of radiation a person gets will lead for significant time spent in space to, to greater disability. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Dr. Ashley Shu, author of Against Technoableism, about the intersection of disability and technology. And Ashley, you mentioned an unexpected advantage that ostomy bags might have in space. Would you talk about that? Oh, yeah. So it's really hard to poop in space. <laughs> it's difficult um, creating toilets for the International Space Station and for the shuttle program was very difficult often fail. Um, and sort of the backup, if your toilet fails, is sort of a baggie, a plastic baggie with some sticky material to stick to yourself, then help the poop out with like a like a finger bag situation. Mm. This was in the 60s and 70s. This was the backup. And, and they, you know, early missions, if they were short enough, really encouraged astronauts not to poop. The logistics were difficult. And there are whole like trainers for for like how to use the toilets um, um, in NASA's program. And the thing is, my friend Mallory K. Nelson, who is a brilliant artist and friend, um, has an ostomy bag. Our whole conversation about space is like, 
why aren't we modifying astronauts to have an easier time by giving them ostomy bags, right? It would be, it essentially is what the backup toilet is, right? Something sticky that you put on yourself, but it's a lot less refined. You write that the future is disabled. What do you mean by that? And how do you suggest we prepare for it? Oh, I mean, I mean a lot of things by that. The way I mean it in the book, right, is not just if we achieve our greatest space dreams, we're going to be disabled. But even if we stay close to the planet, we're going to be disabled. We have, we, we've changed our climate, right? Climate change is happening. It's changing weather patterns. It's changing disease patterns. We have higher rates of asthma. We have ticks in places that they usually wouldn't be, and Lyme disease spreading to more areas than, than it existed before. So there's sort of lots of reasons to think sort of the future, whether we're on planet or off, is, is going to be a disabled one, which puts the impetus on us to start doing better at planning for disability and to expect more disability in the future and not less. So much of our science fiction has given us the idea that the goal of technology is to eliminate disabled people, to eliminate disability, because our visions of the future have often excluded disabled people, but that's not going to be the case no matter which way we shake it. Dr. Ashley Shu is the author of Against Techno-Ableism, an associate professor at Virginia Tech, joining from Blacksburg, Virginia. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much, Dessa. It's been a pleasure. To read an excerpt from Against Techno-Ableism, go to sciencefriday.com slash disability.